So read along with me, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. We ask now that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might behold the truth of the gospel of the kingdom of your son, Jesus. We ask that the truth would set us free, that you would unify us and sanctify us in your truth. We pray, God, that you would help us to be a people who are attentive now to our hearts, that we would be open to be convicted where we need to be convicted, to be comforted where we need to be comforted. We express our neediness and our total dependence on you. And yet we believe by faith and ask that you would help our unbelief that you are enough. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I began preparing these messages usually kind of on Tuesday afternoon to get a little bit of a start. But sometimes things happen where God really, really humbles me on whatever we're preaching about. And this week was definitely one of those times. So before I begin to prepare on Tuesday, on Monday I walk outside and I notice that my ladder is missing. Now we have a building and I usually put my ladder in the building, but we also have a pretty legit fence around our property. But it was evidently had been broken into. You could see where somebody had climbed over the fence and it began to make me angry. One of the reasons it made me angry is because we try to really love our neighbors, get to know them, welcome them into our lives, our home, have conversation. But we've had at least three bicycles stolen since we've lived where we currently live. We've had other things taken. It's hard to even like go in the house, like say you have a radio sitting outside. It's like you know because of all the traffic, particularly along one alleyway by our house, is that something might be gone. And so it, it gets to this point where you're like, okay, who's your neighbor? Who's your enemy? The lines are getting blurred. And so we go for a walk. My wife likes to go for walks. And as we go for a walk, we circle back up by this house that's very near to ours that you might say is a troubled location. And there is my ladder. I mean, just laying right out in broad daylight against the house. And so you know, because we're, we're used to this context and situation, you know, I just walk up beside the house and grab it and, you know, walk away. And the guy walks outside from the house and he's like, he's just kind of looking kind of strange, no telling what kind of mental state he's in. And I'm just like, get my ladder. And he's looking, oh, you know, so-and-so sold it to me. You know, because that's how we always hear that, whether it's a bike or a ladder, it's, you know, nobody's to blame. Somebody else sold it to you. And, and then he blamed it on the other neighbor. And so I go and talk to this neighbor, and of course, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And who knows who did it, but there was really no way to do anything. And so this led to something I probably shouldn't do right now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. 
because again, I've not got to preparing this sermon yet. But I did start preparing this. Now this this was this is a board if you can't tell with a lot of nails or screws drilled in it. That I had a couple options. We let these people park on the back side of our property all the time. We don't care. So I thought, well, first off, I could lay this down here, and then the next time one of these idiots pulls up like they're just going to make their, their home on our property and we don't care and tell them they can, then their car can receive this. Some of y'all might leave and leave before I get finished here. All right? But then I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. That's wrong. I don't want to mess somebody's car up. But this area where they can get on the side of this trailer and jump our fence where it's clearly... This, I'm just, this was what I was going to do, and this is actually what I did. Lord, forgive me. It's just set that down right there where their landing spot is. So now they'll have a real rude awakening. The next time they, they think they're slick, going to jump the fence, steal something from me, they'll land on this. Now, of course, if you're thinking, probably the most likely thing would happen is one of my kids would run around and fall on it and die. Or, usually in God's sense of humor, who would probably end up being the one that stepped on it? Me, right? Like probably will happen right now if I don't move it. And why am I saying all that? It's because the next day I have to sit down and open up the, my Bible and read. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. I don't want to love my enemies all the time. I don't want to love people who manipulate you when you try to love them. I don't want to love people who undermine you, who don't care. Even within my own home and within the church, I don't want to love people who it's never enough for. Anybody can become our enemy at any time. And if living with enemies isn't easy, it's definitely crazy to think that Jesus is calling us to not just live with them, but to love them. This is why many people have said this is maybe one of the hardest scriptures to think about what it actually means to live out. One guy, Henry Nouwen, said, if you want to talk about what's the most radical thing said in all the Gospels, it's the call to love your enemy. Not just tolerate your enemy. To love your enemy. It was enough, wasn't it, last time when we looked at Jesus saying, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. No, don't retaliate. It's one thing to not retaliate. It's one thing not to give people back what they got coming to them and a little more on the side. But now we're at a whole new level. Because Jesus is saying, it's not just don't punch back. It's not just not get even. I actually want you to love them. And maybe you're more spiritual than I am. But I don't know what I think about that sometimes. But if the whole story of God is about anything, is it not about enemy love? And our feelings are not just, well, is that even possible? Maybe you could be honest with me. It's not just is that possible, but we've all got to ask ourselves, do we even want to do that? Not just could we do that, not just should we do that, do you even want to do that? 
leave them, maybe, love them, I don't know. And yet this text takes us beyond even the lowest standards of love and tells us we're called to love our enemies as God loves us. We're to love our enemies as God loves His enemies. So how do we do that? Well, first off, let's think about why our enemy love is so hard. Notice verse 43. You've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Why is enemy love so hard? Is because it just feels natural. It just feels like it's the way that it's supposed to be. And that's what had happened to how the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching this text. Leviticus 19.18 tells us to love our enemy. It, I mean, to love our neighbor. It doesn't say to hate your enemy. You, you won't find a direct prescription in the Old Testament that says this, hate your enemy. But the scribes and the Pharisees had read the story descriptively, had pulled a psalm here, a psalm there. Some even sects like the Essenes, if you want to go look more on that, had said, well, the natural implication is if we're to love our neighbor, it means we need to hate our enemy. And the neighbor most likely here was talking of someone that lived in proximity to someone nationally, religiously, and faithfully. We share the same ethnicity, or we share the same religion, we share the same past, we share the same history. These guys haven't heard yet the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus challenges all of that. So it's love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The enemy then most likely would have most directly been the Gentiles or the Romans and the non-faithful Israelites. So who are the people who ethnically and nationally are not like us and who historically have stood in opposition to us or even in an oppressive position over us? Or who are the people who are ethnically and nationally and religiously like us, but they're not faithful? They're heretics or they're deserters. Are there people who water down the truth? The scribes and the Pharisees had set up this understanding of the law that justified you standing in a position of hatred towards those people. The people who did not love God like you love God. There was a big history of harm. These Gentiles, these nations, were not just people who had different beliefs. They were people who had raided the place of God, who had burned down the temple, who had committed great blasphemies and sacrilegious acts, who had led the entire nation of Israel and the people of Judah into slavery, who had killed children, who had raped wives, who now in the form of the empire of Rome lorded over them in their everyday lives. And you can understand why it would not have been a big pill to swallow to say we agree with the scribes and the Pharisees. We're all good with loving our neighbor, but it just makes sense to hate our enemy. These are some bad people. And then to think not only this enemy of Rome, but you have this group like the tax collectors and others in Israel who had decided to seemingly give those guys a pass. Who weren't faithful to your people, but actually participated in that oppression. Who justified it. Who allowed it. I mean, literally, they would have walked down streets. You know, Jesus wasn't the only person ever crucified. And they would have seen people hanging on crosses. 
gasping for their breath, publicly dying as a sign that you do not mess with the Roman government or that could be you. And although the emphasis here may be ethnically, nationally, religiously, we can't write off the personal nature of this because guess who the guy is actually writing this account of the gospel? It's Matthew, who himself was one of those traitors, a tax collector. Hate. Some good reasons to hate folks. To have dislike for people disdain to distance yourself and desire the worst for them to think I have every right to feel this way about you how dare you police my emotions and my tone Jesus how dare you tell me that my longing for this person to not get every drop of the judgment they deserve is not warranted. How dare you tell me that I should not be indifferent to their existence? You remember Jonah? Sometimes wonder what the scribes, the Pharisees, and all of us do with Jonah. This is a guy that wanted to read the Old Testament that he had up to that point in terms of love your neighbor, hate your enemy. He was called by God to go and proclaim the gospel to the people of Assyria. These were people who in even closer proximity historically had and would wreak havoc upon the people of God. And God says, Jonah, I want you to go to them and I want you to call them to repent. Jonah's response is not like, yes, I can't wait to do this because I know they won't accept it. No, Jonah runs away. You know why he runs away? Because he knows who God is. He knows how big God's grace is. He knows how powerful the proclamation of God's word is. So Jonah runs away. He doesn't want to have any part of the reconciliation of these enemies. And even when he does end up obeying on the other side of the big fish and all the stories, some of us maybe don't know how the end of the book of Jonah goes, but if you go read Jonah chapter 4, after the people do repent, do you think Jonah's sitting back and saying, isn't this great, this great international revival? No, Jonah's sitting on the outside of the city and he is ticked off. He's ticked off because guess what? He was right. God gave compassion to His enemies. And the story ends. And yet the story continues. Probably right here in this room. So the first thing, if we're going to love our enemy, then we've got to acknowledge how easy it is to hate. We're being taught to hate. We're being discipled to hate by our world. 
We're being taught by philosophers that the whole, the whole existence of humanity is just a power struggle. Class versus class. Those who have versus those who have not. And the only way that you're going to make any progress is not by playing nice. It's by developing this sort of hatred in your heart where you see, where you doubt, where you distrust. We're being told that a righteous indignation, a holy anger, won't get the job done. That's the path of chumps. We're being told that we got to get hard on the inside if there's going to be any hope for victory. Some of you may be like me on certain days and in certain seasons of my life. I've just thought, I don't really think I have any enemies. Well, the question is, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but is there ever any time at any point where there's someone that you're setting back and you're just seething in your heart over? You're burning to see them get what's coming to them? Could be your spouse, your parents, your children, your roommates, your co-workers. Someone in your missional community, your fight club. You may not say they're always an enemy, but maybe they've become that, but maybe sometimes that's who it is. This is someone who now I'm in a position of hostility towards. This is someone that I just don't like, and I'm totally cool with it. I don't like them. I don't want to like them. And I feel every right to not do that. So you distance yourself from this person. You're cool with what Jesus says. I'm not going to retaliate. But love? Give me a break. That's your enemy. Why do you hold on to your hate? Well, sometimes if you're like me, you're like, there's nothing else I can do. So do stupid stuff like make a board or whatever. It's like I gotta have some. I gotta have something. So it's like we're we're judging this person. We're punishing them by by holding on to that. Sometimes we think our hate keeps us safe. Sometimes we think our hate keeps us sane. But what hate is not a fruit of the spirit. It's a fruit of the flesh. And if we're not careful, it will it will just be a reflex from our hearts. And then it will become a part of our identity like it had for many in Israel where you define the very existence of who you are by who you're not. You can just imagine the scribes and the Pharisees. Who are we if we don't stand as those who hate the nations? Who are we if we don't hate Rome? Who are we if we don't hate Assyria, John might say? And you may have had hate so wrapped up in the narrative and the story of your life that you might, if you were honest, say, who am I if I don't hate this person? Who am I if I don't hate this group? But Jesus wants to set us free from that. And so He calls us not only to acknowledge our hate as such a natural reflex that seems so inevitable and uncontrollable and even justified, but He calls us to love our enemies like God does. 
So notice verses 44 through 47. Jesus is going to challenge His disciples to a different way. The Old Testament is being falsely taught by the scribes and Pharisees. They've missed the heart of the law as they have in all these other laws we've listed out. But now He's saying if you want to know the heart of God, He says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. And we've got to hear that, but I say to you, you might think, Pastor, preacher, you don't have a clue. You've lived some kind of cushy life. You're speaking from some place of privilege and you, you just don't know it. So I'm, don't listen to me. This isn't but Rusty says to you. This is but Jesus says to you. Trust me, I wouldn't have came up with this. I'm this guy. This is Jesus speaking. If the Lordship of Jesus means anything to you, the Spirit is asking you right now just to listen. He says to love your enemies. And what's very interesting if we think of this love, because all of us immediately want to say, well, I could do this and do this. Again, we just become Pharisees so fast, all of us. We want to make our list, our little nice neat boundaries and check boxes so we can all do the minimum. Right? That's just how we are. Just tell me what to do so I can do the minimum and then get on with the rest of my life. That's not what it means to be a disciple. At least a disciple of Jesus. Let's be a disciple of the Pharisees. Notice here, Jesus, the same word, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, now says, love your enemy. If you like to look at the words beyond the words, even Jesus is using this word agape. Now, I don't think, lexically speaking, there's really any difference in how agape, phileo, and eros, and all that are used. We could talk about that later. Blah, blah, blah. All these are used interchangeably. But for those of you who may for some reason think, well, agape is the, the good stuff, well, that's what's right here. Agape your enemies. Regardless of national, ethnic, or religious boundaries, Love them. Regardless of heresies, compromises, watered down, bad theology, dishonest practices, white collar, blue collar crime, love your enemies. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not irritable. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, we like to read that at weddings. You probably need to read that when you watch the news and read through your Facebook or Instagram or Twitter feed. And Jesus gives us a picture of what it looks like to, to live that love out by telling us what we see next in the text. He says, Pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus here is not talking about praying an imprecatory psalm. If you don't know what that is, it's these psalms where, where it's like, 
God, I just want you to kick their teeth out. We're going to come back around to those in a minute. But right here when Jesus is saying pray for them, He's saying pray for them like your neighbor. Remember, He set up this parallel. So He's saying, I want you to pray blessing on them. I want you to pray with their best interest in mind. Again, you're not rejoicing in wrongdoing. We saw that's not the definition of love. But you're actually praying for this person to prosper in the most best way that they could through a relationship with God. You pray for those who persecute you it's saying, you hurt me, but I have hope for you. And Jesus says when we do this, notice that we're like our Father. Notice verse 45. Why would we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This doesn't make us sons of God, but this reveals that we are sons of God. It shows that we are like our Father. The great sign of the new birth, if someone is born again, is that this cultivation and this growth of love for enemies is revealed. There's a, there's a doctrinal category in the Scriptures. It's called common grace. Every person who is alive in this world is alive only by the grace of God. They may not have experienced His saving grace that makes them children of God, but there ain't nobody breathing on any place in this planet except God's keeping them alive. And that goes to the baddest person, the most evil person in this world that you could think of. That's a part of what it means for God to love people. As one person said, they have to, even the worst atheist right now who's spending his life and his passion to discredit God and to cause people to disbelieve God, to deconstruct their faith into nothing but hopelessness. As the apologist says, they have to sit in God's lap to slap him in the face. They can't even move that pen because it's in Him we live and move and have our breathing. They can't type that in this paragraph apart from His grace. He loves them. And I hate to spend a lot of time here, but it's so important. Sometimes people get confused at why sometimes you could look at an unchristian marriage and be like, well, they're not Christians, but their marriage actually looks better than mine. Or you can talk about art or music and be like, well, they're... They're not Christians, but I think maybe their art and music's better than ours. Well, it's, it's common grace, right? He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. It's not a sign that there's nothing to God's grace. It's a sign that everything is by God's grace. God loves His enemies. Now, there are distinctions to this. We can't tap under every nook and cranny of this issue. But although there is a distinction in God's effectual love that leads to our salvation, God's love is for all people. They might not yet be in that family, but there's always a seat at the table. 
God loves His neighbors. He loves His enemies. That's why any of us are alive at all. Ezekiel 33.11 Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, that I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? In the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God loves His enemies. And Jesus says, love your enemies so that you're like Him. Because if we're not, then we're just like everyone else. Verse 46 and 47, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? I mean, we just love people who love us. We're no different than the world. Than the scheming tax collectors whose lives are just centered around their self-interest and their profit and their gain. Than the nations. That is the people who have yet to come to know God as the true God of the world. We're just the same. I don't know that we're doing much better today as Christians than they were doing then. Again, if you were to watch the news, if you were to listen to the talks and just go to Hardy's at about five or six in the morning and sit in booths and listen to probably local church leaders, not to be negative or critique. Just, just get on social media and, and look down at the Christians and see if you feel the flavor of love in the midst of disagreements. Or is it just like, man, it's just like the world. It's just like the world. Living for the same reward. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, you got it. Okay, you were right. Okay, you really zing that other person. You got a good jab in. Okay, there's your reward. And all the people who love you pat you on the back, say, oh man, you're so slick, you're so witty. Okay, there's your reward. But I guarantee you there ain't nobody looking at you and saying you're different. Saying show me a different way. It's just you and your friends who you already all love each other living for one another's praise instead of the glory of God. I hesitated to share this next story because of the content, but I'm going to do so and we can talk about it afterwards. Y'all know I can't say everything just right, especially in a limited time. But Steve Brown, some of you may know this preacher, he did a conference at Gordon College in Boston and he said that when he came to do this conference, it was just a weird kind of feel around the campus. Everybody was kind of subdued. And, and he talked to one of the leaders there, and they said one of the reasons why is that someone, one of the students had recently uh, been raped or was in that situation. But then he said while, while it was 
In the process of happening or starting to happen before he was arrested, the young lady began to pray for the person out loud. When he was arrested, he went to jail. Supposedly, as the story goes, he never forgot about her praying for him. It like messed with his head. And so when he finally got out, justly served his time, he went to a church and he shared how that had messed with him and it led him to sharing how he had been sexually abused his whole life. He recently found out that he had AIDS. How a part of his story is how he had been abused by the church. But that prayer messed with him. Messed with his categories. And so he wondered if there might be hope for him, an enemy. He heard the gospel, began to follow Jesus. And this preacher said he leaned over and hugged him and wept with him. I'm as skeptical as all of you, if not more, about these preacher stories. And all the nuances of that conversation and situation that would have to be teased out. Man, you start to pray for your enemies, you are going to mess with people. (laughs) All of us in here are expecting when we're somebody's enemy, we want them to retaliate. We want them to just leave us alone. If you're like me, maybe sometimes you've been mean to somebody just so they would you leave you alone. But what do we do with love? If we're going to obey Jesus, there's no quick, easy answers here. We're going to have to wrestle with this, what it looks like to love our enemies. Of course we need to continue setting boundaries in our relationships, particularly if people have hurt us in bad ways. Those boundaries maybe have to be big and strong and communally involved. But sometimes we build those boundaries so that hatred doesn't grow. Sometimes it's because you've not put any boundaries in your life that you hate people so much. You just let people use you again and again and it's more and more and more. And so you look on the outside like you're just the nicest person in the world. Because you just do for people. You're always there. But deep down, a hatred is growing. So the most loving thing for you to do for your enemies, broadly defined, might be to set boundaries. So that you will love. But the goal has to be love. Our sinful, twisted hearts will will take this and try to figure out a way we can build a system justified as loving when really what we're wanting to do is just get rid of folks from our lives. Jesus is telling them to love their enemies. And again, how do you love the Roman Empire? Not the empire per se, but these people who represent it. Well, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, it doesn't mean you rejoice in wrongdoing. And I know it's very controversial right now to, tr- to separate loving sin versus loving sinners and how you define all that. 
But we've got to have a category for where we can say, hey, I don't agree with what you're doing. I don't rejoice in wrongdoing, whatever it is. I don't like it that you're stealing my stuff out of my yard every time I go to bed at night. But I want you to know that I'm not sitting over here plotting your destruction. I'd like you to come down here and join us at our missional community's family meal this Wednesday night. We're going to have to discipline ourselves to pray for our enemies. This is where those imprecatory psalms come. As you know what, you might have to pray your hate before God before you can pray your love for your enemies. You know, God can handle that. You're just letting it all hang out. He don't want you to stay there. But you may have to get honest. This is not talking about sweeping what other people have done under the rug. You can go to God and you can say, God, I hate this person. Guess what? He already knows it. Or I'm hating this person this week. Or I'm hating them right now. Again, talk to God about that. Let Him know there's lots of Psalms where that's going on in the Bible. But then as we pray that through the Gospel, we want to then learn to pray for the best interest of those whom we do hate. I just thought as I was working on this, this may need to be a spiritual discipline for some of us in our lives. For all of us at certain times. It's where you get out a pen and a paper and you write out a prayer of love for your enemy. Again, not rejoicing in wrongdoing, not ignoring anything, not sweeping anything under the rug, but you you just maybe take the Lord's Prayer and you say, man, God, I want to pray right now that my neighbor would know You as Father. So they could be set free from whatever it is that's hurt them or wounded them maybe in their own life. I want to pray that the kingdom of God would take root in them. That they would know You, Jesus, as Lord. Or when it's your spouse or your child or your parent, I want to pray right now that they would be reminded that there is forgiveness. I want to pray that right now that they would be overwhelmed by Your graces in such a way that actually changes their life. This discipline may change us from Jonah-type prophets who just say, God, I'll do it, but I don't have to like it. That's not what Jesus is after. You doing stuff, but you don't like it. He's after your heart. So how is this possible? As we come to the end of this, we hear it's as if Jesus just keeps raising the ante. And like we have verse 48. It's really the summary probably of this whole chapter. But it's connected to this text most directly as well where it says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So we don't grow in this enemy love by just acknowledging how natural it seems. We don't grow in it also by just having this picture of what it means to love our enemies as God loves us. But the only way enemy love is possible is we have got to have this hope that the love of God has come to live in us. This word perfect is probably not, without me sounding like I'm changing the Bible here, is probably not the best translation for us sort of law-wired people. This word that's talking about completion, this word that's talking about maturity, this word that's really talking about holiness or wholeness, 
Because when all of us in here hear the word perfect in our, our Western and visualized performance culture, we all immediately think, okay, this is about me just doing everything just right. But it's talking about a wholeness. Remember, Jesus is preaching this as the, as the way that we are to see the law of God taking root in our hearts through His kingdom. It's almost the same thing as back to Leviticus 19 where we're called to love our neighbor and then it says, if you go read in context, be holy as I am holy. That's what's happening here. Be perfect as your Father is perfect. Go to Leviticus. Be holy as I am holy. Saying, I want you to embody the wholeness of God in the world. And this is not just mere individualism. Jesus here is speaking to a people just as God was speaking to the people in Leviticus 19. I want you as a people, as my kingdom, to represent me in the world in this way. And I want you to see the apex of maturity as your love of enemy. It's like, don't, don't talk to me about how many theology books you've read. Don't talk to me about your Greek and Hebrew nouns and parsing. Don't talk to me about how smart you are and what education you have. Let's talk about enemy love. Then we'll talk about holiness. If you're like me, this may seem a bit overwhelming. How do we get there? How do we dare to believe that not only Jesus is calling us to do this, but that we have the power to do this. To be holy in this world through the way that we love others from the heart. When there's been hate in us maybe even this week or this morning or this moment. Well, we need the Gospel. So I think Jesus would say now, have you forgotten creation? Do you realize that the story of this world doesn't start with your sinfulness? Do you realize that the story of your salvation does not start with your depravity? Do you realize it starts in a garden where man and woman, where humanity were created in the image of God? And what if anything is at the heart of the image of God but this capacity to love? To reflect Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternal communion and joy? And did Jesus not pray for us that we would have the same love that He had with the Father? But we can't forget the fall. But what was it that led to that fall? It was a distrust that God's laws were realistic that we could trust Him. So if you're sitting there and you're saying, I can't trust Jesus' call to love my enemy. Well, that's the same thing that got us into this mess of enemies in the first place. Have you forgotten this story of promise? The story of a God who through the Scriptures never gives up on His enemies. I mean, just read the history of Israel and the world. Some boneheaded stuff in there. And God continues to be faithful in His love. But ultimately, have you forgotten your own redemption? Adam, 
Israel are not some mere historical ideas, but they're mirrors of us. All of us in here, apart from the grace of God, are His enemies. We've given Him the middle finger. We've said, I'm going to do life on my own terms. I'll come to you when I need you, but I'm going to do what I want. And when you're not convenient, then I don't care. We've been self-protective, self-redemptive, idolaters, and players of God. And if God loved us like we've loved our enemies, we would be in bad shape. But I'm thankful that God did not do dumb stuff like this in response to my repeated, repeated doing dumb stuff like this. But in the face of our rebellion, our lack of love, He sent Jesus. And He loved us. He loved His enemies. He, he stands over Jerusalem and He weeps at their rejection of Him. He, did, he didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. He's not sitting back thinking, oh, I cannot wait until these scribes and Pharisees get what's coming to them. They've just messed up understanding the whole Bible and ruined everything for the whole people of God. No, what he does instead is he goes to a cross as the true and better Adam, the true and better, the true and better Israel, the true and better us. And as he hangs on the cross, he prays not let them get what they got coming to them, God, but Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he rises from the dead as if it was enough to cover for our sins so that we might be called the sons and daughters of God. So that we might be new creations. And even as we read earlier that God shows his love for us while we were still sinners and that Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from his wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now we shall be reconciled who have been saved by His life. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table and to taste and see this redemption in just a second, I want to remind you of the Apostle Paul whose story ends with him discipling Timothy with words like this. 2 Timothy 2, 23-26. This is what he says have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. How did Paul get to the point to where that was how he discipled these leaders of the church and the whole church? I think it's because he never forgot where his story started. He was the enemy of God in that day. He was raiding house churches and dragging people off to be stoned to death. 
And yet Jesus met him on that Damascus road and he said, Paul, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he didn't strike him with lightning, but he changed his life with love. And that's the only way any of us are going to be able to disciple ourselves and disciple others in the same way that Paul's discipling Timothy here is we got to remember our story. We are the enemy that's been loved. We are the ones who've been forgiven much. And so while we don't rejoice in wrongdoing, we're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the way. We're called to be faithful when we don't feel like it. C.S. Lewis said, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets that often when you're behaving as if you love someone, sometimes you will find out you have come to love them. And where else do we see a greater picture of this in the Gospels than around Matthew's table? It's Jesus, it's disciples, tax collectors, and sinners. And this is what we want to do as a church. We're about to come around the Lord's table and we're going to be looking around a bunch of reconciled enemies. We want this table to lead to those tables on Wednesdays or Sundays or whenever your family, meet, family meal is. But we also want it to lead into your everyday lives around your own supper tables in your own homes. Groups of people that don't make sense when you look at it. There's only one explanation. And the explanation is Jesus. It's the gospel. It's the explanation that comes when we're called to love our enemies as God has loved us. Father, we thank you that you have loved us and not left us as enemies. We thank you that you've not merely left us or tolerated us, but that you've called us to your table. And we come now by faith alone and Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen.